So I wanted to hop right in on what could be a tough sermon for some of you. And I would encourage you, if you're getting discouraged, because Romans 1 through 3 is a tough chapter, set of chapters, I should say, a tough section of the Romans road, jump ahead. Uh, I give my wife a hard time for this. When, we, when she reads a mystery novel, she likes to skip from chapter 1 to the very end to find out what's going on or what happens. I'm the opposite way. We love mystery movies, but that can cause some problems uh, in there. Usually she's patient and, and lets me watch it, although she will hop on her phone and find out a little bit ahead of time. She just doesn't tell me any spoilers. But if you need to, jump to Romans 8.1. If at any point the endless condemnation that happens in Romans 1 through 3 starts to overwhelm you, jump to Romans 8.1. This is Paul's long-form gospel, a long explanation of what is summed up in John 3.16. So don't be afraid to jump ahead. It's quite all right. I've never liked Jonathan Edwards' famous sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's one of the most famous sermons of all time, especially of American sermons, but I haven't been a fan of it. And it was one of several school and homework assignments which caused me and my mom to have a little bit of consternation. Usually it's reserved for math. If you've been there with your kids arguing, I saw a tweet earlier this week about, or Tiff showed me something maybe, but it was a child, an elementary school child, who was arguing with their engineer dad, and somehow they felt like the math added up in their brains, and the parents were trying to figure out how to help their young and less educated child out in discovering the math. But many of us have had those struggles. But my mom and I used to have some as well. She would edit my papers, and she was excellent at it, all the way through master's, by the way, my uh, master's degree. I would send her uh, my essay or my paper, and then she and I would argue over it. I love my mom. She's amazing. Uh, but in those moments, we would wrestle, and it was sometimes heated, not in a bad or inappropriate way most of the time. If it was, it was probably on my side. She's a very calm lady. But this was one of them, as she would argue the significance of it and the value of it, and I just didn't really like it that much. But on top of everything else, I bumped into it junior year. So for me, fall of 1990, you can do the math real quick if you want to on that one. I am not yet 50, and you can find out my age if you want to wrestle through that math problem today. But I bumped into it in a class with an excellent teacher, one of my favorites, but it was well known, at least among the Christian students at San Luis High School, that she was an atheist and was very difficult and by difficult, we usually meant she was really good, and she expected good work. But this particular assignment, they always bumped into, and with the added pressure of being the youth pastor's kid at the biggest church in town, whether she knew that or not, I had to wrestle with this one even more of bumping into sinners in the hands of an angry God and a junior high, high school boy mind engaging in an essay with an atheist teacher, and it was an interesting wrestling match. Like I said, she was good. She was, one of the, she was, she is retired. I believe she's passed away at this point as well, but she was one of the best teachers at San Luis High School, a staff with many excellent teachers. But it was tough to engage in a problem or in an essay that starts with an angry God, 
But I have to admit, this might be my angry God sermon because, as I mentioned before, Paul unwraps condemnation, and it's an endless barrage. If this is not your favorite sermon ever, I will understand and I won't be offended. But it is an important step in the gospel. We can't skip it and we can't ignore it, but we can't get stuck on it either. As with the theology of hell, if it's your favorite part of theology, something's a little off. But we can't avoid condemnation any more than we can avoid a discussion of hell where it is appropriate and with the right attitude and approach to it. So I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 through 3, most of 3, but this is going to be excerpts. It's going to be a little hard to follow along. I believe it's going to pop on the screen, but if not, you'll have to just listen as I skip parts. I would encourage you, as I did last week, go back and read it in, in context and as a whole. But for the sake of time, I'm going to... I'm going to jump around a little bit in order for Paul's argument, trying to catch the entire thing, and then we'll journey through it. But it's a tough journey today. Next week will be much better, but I love that condemnation is happening the same day as communion because even just having our communion plates up here should be a visual reminder of grace, that the gospel goes to grace. It does not stay at condemnation. It's leading to a God of grace. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Though they knew God's righteous, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But because of your hand, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 
For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on our hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a powerful set of verses, even skipping significant parts of the argument. But it's not a fun and cozy one. Many of those are not verses that are landing on t-shirts or getting tattooed on people's arms or legs as their favorite verse. Paul hits all of us hard, especially at the end. The no one section challenges many of our views of people. For good reason, and even for parts of scripture, we want to view the world through the eyes of God, and we want to be loving, and yet Paul takes us to the other part of the eyes of God that is dealing with righteousness and is honestly looking at us and saying we are not righteous people apart from Christ. And it starts in verse 18 by pointing out that we are rightly condemned. It's going to mention many of the reasons that we are condemned and it's going to address a lot of reasons that people think that they're okay with God. He's going to challenge them. But it starts by pointing out that God is right in this and he is just in his wrath. He is righteous in his condemnation. It mentions it in 118. I was just reminded of this before. Something weird might happen in the room in a moment because youth groups are youth groups and we like to have fun. It also mentions it, though, later on multiple times, including 2-2. Thank you very much. Those of you wondering what just happened in our youth group, youth groups are weird. We do weird things to have fun. Whenever I say tutu, either people will stand up and twirl like a ballerina wearing a tutu, or they'll spin their finger. Or I figured out at some point, if they're too cool for that, they still join us because their eyes roll and they spin and twirl. Don't ask why. We just, we just implement it at this point. At this at some point in our time, and they asked me, oh, are you going to do it at some point when I preach? So the answer is yes. But we're going to move on now. We are rightly condemned. It's okay to have fun in services, by the way. But we are rightly condemned. God is not wrong in this. However you feel when you hear any part of chapter 1 through 3, go back to 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then Paul unleashes. He looks at us all and leaves nobody out, including himself, by the way. And he says, we're condemned. 
He comes out against all sin, and it's applied to all sinners. It's not just some. He makes an extreme point throughout all of the chapters, 1 through 11, that nobody is excluded. His wrath isn't saved for the Gentiles. It's not uh, only unloaded on the Jews who had the law. It's unleashed against everyone and all of humanity. Nobody is going to escape the onslaught of God's wrath apart from Christ. And then he starts explaining why. And he says it's because we suppress the truth. There's going to be variations of this throughout chapters 1 through 3, where we know better. And we know we know better, even if we're not being honest with ourselves and admitting that we know better. He's going to unload verbally and logically on all of humanity, not letting anybody escape. So there's no sweet enough little old lady and there's no unreached person that has an excuse. But it is complete and completely justified condemnation of all people. So let's look at some of the condemnation. And again, I'd encourage you to read through one through three together. I'm going to highlight where these are from more than reading most of them again just for the sake of time. But he starts in in verse 18, 19, and 20. It's really 18 through 25 where he points out that we're condemned because of and by creation. God's existence, his divinity, and his sovereignty are all evident, his invisible qualities. They're evident and they're clear and they're plain so that we're without excuse The intricate design of the world and universe that we are in, the amazing creation from Genesis 1, all points out that God exists and designed it and designed it with purpose. And if we're honest, when we're looking through a microscope or a telescope, we'll acknowledge it. And I know some people are challenging me in their brain right now. But God's pointing out we suppress the truth. And here's one of them. Our existence in this world that he made for us to enjoy and rule over to his glory, it condemns us. And I don't have time to elaborate on that, but I would encourage you to think through the many ways that this world points you to God. And I'd encourage you to join a Sunday school class who we often send questions to and see if they're talking about this one today. How is this world amazing in such a way that it points us to God? There are many, many answers to that. The other thing to think through, though, is this question that pops up from time to time, but usually not in a question form. But what would convince people that God exists? And if you listen to their answers, Scripture deals with all of them and presents all of them because they've all happened. If you talk to people about that, what would convince you that God existed? Well, this world would. And God's response is, this world does. Well, if he spoke, then I'd believe. And God's response is, I have many times over throughout Scripture, and I've recorded it for you. You can find it in the Bible. Well, if he only showed up, that's called the incarnation, and he did. And people, 
in that moment rejected him. And of course, throughout history, have still rejected him. Any answer they give can be found as having already happened in Scripture. And some believed when they encountered it, and some did not believe when they encountered it. But Romans 1 through 3 leaves us all condemned because of it, starting with we're condemned by creation. Verse 21 through 25 on top of that points out that we were made with purpose to honor God and give thanks to him. That not only were we put in a world that points us to him, but it indicates our purpose. And before you push back too much on God's design and creation, part of what is suppressed is purpose. If your worldview leaves you with no purpose, you need to find a better worldview. But God tells us what our purpose is. That we are made to honor him and to thank him. And as we mentioned before, to enjoy him. Instead, it points out that we deny him, that we twist the truth, and that in the end, we run to worship other things, things that we've made or ourselves. That we displace God and put something else there. But as many people have said before, you will worship something. Scripture points out that that something is supposed to be God. So the first thing is that we're condemned by creation. The second thing, we are condemned by and for our sinfulness, our own sinful action. Verse 26 through 31 or 32. Usually people don't separate out 32. It goes together. I would say it actually rolls into 2, 1 and beyond, chapter 2. Remember those chapters and verses are added for simplicity and added later. They're not natural They're good, but they aren't original. But it points out that we are condemned by our sinfulness. We are going to sit here for a little bit in some of it. A couple different points. Verse 26 and 27 says this. Well, excuse me. 26 and 27 says this. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. These are not popular verses right now. And I'd like to direct you back to 116. Paul just said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even when we make statements that are a little uncomfortable in our culture. Now, this is another section I would love to have another sermon or more sermons on, especially if you'd stay with me. But we have to admit, this is one of what's sometimes called the clobber passages. But you've got to understand in a context. Yes, it's a clobber passage. But Paul's clobbering everyone. He's not isolating a single group and then leaving them out there alone. He's unleashing on the entire world and history of humanity right now. So yes, it's a clobber passage, especially if you pull it out of context. But we have to remember his argument, grace follows. We are condemned, but we are not irredeemable. That's the point of the Roman road that we were walking down. For all of us, the biblical sexual ethic is clear, but it is not essential doctrine. It is significant for sanctification and holiness. So this matters for holiness. We celebrate celibate singlehood 
or we enjoy heterosexual monogamy, but these are matters of orthopraxy, not creedal orthodoxy. And we have to keep that straight. It's not salvific. In fact, all of verse 26 through 32 is significant for practice and living holy. And for his argument, it's significant for condemnation. But none of it is essential salvific doctrine. It doesn't save us. It can condemn us. And Scripture is clear about holy living. But this does not save us. Two interesting points here, by the way. This is the only part of Scripture that directly addresses and states lesbianism. The rest of the time, and there are not many of them, but it just talks about what we would call LGBT, but homosexuality in general. The other significant part, though, is that the Bible talks significantly more about heterosexual sins than LGBT. God comes after us when he comes after us. And he doesn't let any of us off the hook. For any LGBT that are in the room or listening online or that encounter this at some point, this is what I will often say in our youth group when the subject comes up. The Bible says what it says. We can't dismiss it or ignore it. This is true of any issue that we're discussing, by the way, from Scripture. We can't dismiss it or ignore it. We've got to wrestle with it. So wrestle with your king because he can take it. And don't ever forget that our king is the king of grace. That's his character. And remember that you are an image bearer of immense value. So along with every other weary sinner, you are welcome here at the foot of the cross. For parents of LGBT, take hope. It's not as bleak as is so often claimed by media and people. And I would encourage you to go read the studies. I linked one in my notes from UCLA and the Williams Institute. But if you need to, I would love to discuss with you. In particular, though, how we respond to it matters because homelessness in the stats is very significant. Our response should never be to kick someone out of our home because they state that they're LGBT. Instead, it should be to love them and say, this is your home. I'm your parent. For the church, it's not as bad as stated and as accused, but we still have to do better. Better in both living out Christ-like love and living out Christ-like faithfulness to Scripture. As I mentioned, there is much more there, and if you would like to discuss it sometime, I'm happy to discuss God's character and love and redemption and Scripture with you, as well as holiness and faithfulness to Scripture. The other 20-plus sins that are in that list are extensive but still not exhaustive, and you're on there somewhere, whether you like it or not. There are so many accepted and even respectable sins that have been called out 
by some, greed and gossip, pride, boasting, anger, and you can keep going down that road. And all the time, there are so many more accepted and respectable sins, even within the church. More recently, things like, well, maybe not so more recently, but seems to be, self-centeredness, struggling with porn and lust and even immodesty, being domineering, especially as a leader, and that list continues And neither of them should be things that are accepted and respectable. They should be things that we admit and confess and address and fall at the feet of Christ, enjoying his grace because of. But I want you to notice verse 28, which points out not only did we commit those, but God had a response to that. He gave them up to these sins. Them is us. It's all people. This is the condemnation section. As, my youth, as, as a youth pastor, though, I want to point out my personal favorite that's on the list. Because if you think somehow you've escaped the list to this point, verse 30 at the end says, disobeying parents. <laughs> it got us all on that one. And it condemns us to hell for disobeying our parents. Think of your rebellious teenage years. Even if you weren't a straight-up rebel, you can probably imagine or remember some things that maybe your parents don't even know about your rebellious teenage heart. Teens, I love you. That's why I work with you. But that hits us. Hard. Talk about another respectable sin. It's one we just dismiss because we encounter it so much. Just think of all the ways that you mistreated your mom. You literally have no life without her. And you treated her that way. Because we all do. Then go to the Old Testament law and you realize that it was the death penalty to disobey your parents. It's a fun one to wrestle through on its own. But this is what the Old Testament law gave the death penalty. It was for murder, for idolatry, for infidelity, and for eye rolls. That cost you your life. Teens eye roll so much, they don't even know it. One of my great joys as a youth pastor is to point it out to them when they did it, and they deny that they did it while eye rolling their eyes again, which I'll then call out, and they'll still usually deny it a second time and do it again, and it dawns on them, oh, yes, I am. (laughs) It finally sinks in on the third or fourth eye roll. I'm doing it now, aren't I? And all of their friends at that point, because I call them out around groups when that happens, all of their friends are watching them roll their eyes over and over and over again. And then in, in the end, we'll all giggle. I don't do it in moment usually. I don't do it in moments that are a little more personal or intense or anything else. I'll pick, I'll pick my moments in that. But when we're all getting tired on a missions trip and the eyes are rolling more and more, and to that, God put the death penalty in the Old Testament law. That's wild. Our actions condemn us. Creation and our actions The rest of this are going to go faster. It's no less significant. But we're condemned by and for our approving of sinfulness in verse 32. 
Not just that we do those things, but then we applaud others when they do them as well. That's not targeting one particular thing in our culture. It's targeting all of our affirmation of sin. We know better regarding both what is sin and what is condemned. And we embrace it all too often anyways. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, it says we're condemned by our hypocrisy. That it actually stores up wrath. Because of our hypocrisy and sin. 2, 6 through 9, it says we're condemned by our desired standard. If you ask most people, how are you going to get into heaven? They'll say it's because I'm good enough. Well, he's already ruled that out, but he embraces our condemnation terms. Fine. You want to go by works? Let's go down that road. But I have to tell you, you are not all right with God based off of your works. Chapter 3 is going to condemn that too. But he says, our own hypocrisy does. We're going to go with works? Fine, look at the world. They're treating people wrong. They do this. And God says, you mean the thing you're doing? You mean the very thing that has caught your attention but you've forgotten is part of your life as well? Your hypocrisy is condemning you to hell. Your desired standard of works is condemning you to hell. We know better, and we keep doing it. We're condemned by conscience. Verse 2.15, it says it's written on our hearts. Those of you that are thinking of the old 2000-ish song, Written on Our Hearts, it has nothing to do with this verse. I looked it up earlier in the summer, and I, and I thought, oh, that's a completely different direction with it. But it's written on our hearts. Our conscience shows that we know better. Our conscience shows not that we know the details of the law, but that we know basic moral code. And you can look at the history of the world. It's astounding how much of us, how many of us agree on what right living is in general. We agree that murder is wrong. And you can think of the exceptions, except gang members and cannibals both show that they know murder is wrong because they get offended when somebody kills somebody they care about. You might have a different mark of what counts as murder. But there's virtually nobody that says it's never wrong. All of us have a standard that show this and that and something else is condemnable action. And our culture is highlighting this a lot right now, which is comical because of how much we've ditched truth with a big T. It's all subjective, except I'm going to get really mad when you disagree with my standard of truth. That's what's being talked about both by hypocrisy and conscience. Our conscience shows we know better. And it shows that basic morality is hardwired. Even as it's suppressed, it pops out and people can't hide it. And then 3, 10 through 12, we are completely condemned. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one, in case you were confused by none is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's an interesting verse in light of the, the seeker-sensitive church trend of a couple decades ago. Not that they're entirely wrong. We should be a place that people feel welcome coming into. 
But nobody seeks for God, not without him working on their hearts. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. It's an interesting contrast. Wonderfully made, immensely valuable, and by our actions, acting as if we're worthless, and even becoming so, not from God's perspective, but in terms of our condemnation. And then that final line, no one does good, not even one. That's our purpose that we're made for. And we've completely rejected it and fallen short. We are completely condemned. Interestingly, by the way, he's quoting Psalm 14. It's one, but it's the second half of one through verse 3. Romans 1.18 through 32 then, and maybe even all the way to 3.9, chapter 3, verse 9. But that, the section that we're in, 128, I'm sorry, 118 through 32, is basically Paul's explanation of Psalm 14, verse 1, the first part, where it says the fool declares in his heart there is no God. And Paul expands that, and then he quotes the next couple verses. His point is that we're completely condemned, completely and rightly condemned. 3, 19 through 20 continues and points out that the law corrects us and condemns us. We are corrected and condemned by the law. 3.19, it says the whole world is accountable to God. Nobody escapes that accountability. The law condemns, but nobody will be saved by the law or their own obedience of the law. We can't do that. In fact, that verse or that screen that we had up last week with the long-form version of the gospel, if you want to add it in there, you could tack on chapter 3, verse 20, where it states that nobody is going to be declared righteous by the law. Jesus fulfilled it. The rest of us can't live up to it. And then the final clincher in this section, 3.23, we are condemned by God's standard and character, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Both his character and his standard. Perfection was the standard, and his glory, his character, they both condemn us. We all fall short. The all there, by the way, is not so much in the context individual as uh, collect, collective groups of people. He's direct, just been contrasting Jews and Gentiles. He will hop in and out of that, but it holds for individuals as well. That's his overall point. That we as individuals and we as people groups are all condemned, rightly condemned, and that we all fall short. Interestingly, by the way, Paul doesn't mention original sin until chapter 5 when he's left the condemnation section. That one condemns us as well. Adam and Eve's sin leaves us condemned. But Paul doesn't bring it up until later. I know that that's all a lot. But as I mentioned a couple times, I've left big chunks of his argument out. So make sure you go back and read all of chapter 1 through 3 at some point. And again, I'd encourage you, be reading all of Romans throughout the summer as we encounter it. It will help you understand and remember Paul's argument. But before we end, and in particular because we're transitioning to communion, I want to give you a glimmer of hope that Paul adds in chapter 3. As we mostly leave condemnation aside, we're going to step away from, down the, walk down the Roman road, and he leaves it primarily in that first couple steps, chapter 1 through 3. 
as he turns to redemption. 3, verse 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Points out a great theological word, propitiation. We're redeemed by grace, and propitiation is the appeasing of God's wrath through the sacrifice of Christ. We are condemned by so many things, but we are saved by one thing, the work of Christ, his sacrifice, his perfect life, his redeeming work. And so we're left with, yes, a God who condemns, but that God is also a God who is just in that wrath and condemnation. He is not wrong. It is earned and right condemnation. And God is also the justifier in redemption. He is both just and justifier. See, we were made to honor God, but we rejected him. That's our purpose, to honor him and enjoy him forever. And we all failed and walked away from him and our purpose. So we are rightly condemned. And in so many ways, all of us, for so many reasons. It dawned on me earlier this morning, by the way, if you ever struggle with, with the church and the people in the church, this is why the church has rough moments. We are all Romans 1 through 3 death row convicts. And we are still wrestling with and struggling with Romans 7 and Romans 12, sanctification and transformation. Even though, and this is the beautiful truth, we are justified and declared right in Romans 6 through 8. If you encounter issue with the churches, Romans explains it. We're all condemned. We're still being transformed. We've been declared right and are right, but we are messy. That's why we encounter conflict in the church still. But don't stop with condemnation. Don't stay there. That alone is not the gospel. That alone is not the reality of the church. That alone is not what we should, re be, what we should remember. Excuse me. So don't be a Jonah hoping for Nineveh, Nineveh to be destroyed as we look at the world. And don't be a Judas that's wallowing in crushing despair. Instead, 
remember that through Christ's sacrifice, we enjoy and we celebrate hope and grace every Sunday morning when we come together, every day that we wake up. As believers, we celebrate hope and grace. So be the centurion. I believe, help my unbelief. And be Peter, who's restored after denying Christ. Be Rahab, who is rescued into the royal family tree. Be the so many Marys of the New Testament, saved by Christ, and one of the significant people throughout the Gospels. And be the demoniac, commissioned to go tell others the good news and invite them into worship. For we are not ashamed of the gospel, even though it condemns us all, because it then turns to the good news that Christ redeems and forgives any who believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that turn in the gospel, that it does not leave us condemned, but that we have reason to celebrate this morning as we gather and remember through communion, as we stand and worship together, the God who we can wrestle with, whether it's encountering condemnation or it's bumping into a part of your word that we are still figuring out or struggling to embrace, but we wrestle with the God of grace, the God who redeems and a God worth worshiping, the only true God. Lord, we, we praise your name. Amen.